I'm Telly Hescock. Welcome back to Funded, a podcast where we take a deep dive into what public education equity looks like across the state of Vermont. In this episode, we will understand key fundamental questions and definitions about morality, poverty, and education. Since this podcast is a thesis, this episode will serve as a literature review in order to understand the issues and previous work that have helped guide this project. First, let's talk about how we define what a rural place is. After doing my research for this project, I found one thing very clear. There are many ways to define rurality. When we think about rural areas, we see red barns, farmland, dirt roads, but how can we empirically decide what is rural and what is urban? I chose to use a framework from authors Greenow and Nelson from 2017. Vermont falls under the broad category of being a rural state, but their framework takes it a step further and splits rurality into three levels. The first level is rural fringe, defined as territory that is less than or equal to 2.5 miles from an urban cluster. They define urban clusters as ranging in population from 2,500 to 50,000. The next level is rural distance, which is more than 2.5 miles, but less than or equal to 10 miles from an urban cluster. The last level is rural remote, which is considered the most rural. This, This is defined as being more than 10 miles from an urban cluster. I use these definitions to understand where each of the three schools falls on the spectrum of being a, quote, rural school. Middlebury and Virgens are on the rural fringe side of the spectrum, while Leicester falls on the rural remote side. Scholars Greenow and Nelson write that, quote, overall 32% of all public schools in the United States are classified as rural schools in the federal common core of data. That's 30,773 schools out of 95,121 public elementary and secondary schools in the 50 states. The nearly 31,000 rural schools in the United States have 12 million students, which is slightly more than 24% of the national total for all students, unquote. So there's a lot of students that fall under the category of attending rural schools. As a geographer, I am interested in understanding the differences between rural and urban spaces. Do students who attend different levels of rural schools receive the same quality of education and access to resources? The authors note that rural fringe schools, the first level of rural schools, usually have a higher number of students than rural distance and rural remote schools. One of the major frameworks this podcast uses is the connection between rurality and poverty. Many scholars have written about the relationship between rurality and poverty. According to William O'Hare, one in five children living in poverty also lives in a rural area. According to the U.S. Census, the average poverty rate of 2020 was 11.4%. The average poverty rate for children under the age of 18 was 16.1%. O'Hare writes that, quote, rural children are not more likely to be poor, they are more likely to be living in deep poverty, with family incomes less than 50% of the poverty threshold. The official poverty rate does not differentiate how poor a person is. A family that has an income $1 below the poverty threshold is classified as poor, without making a distinction from the family that has income 
thousands of dollars below the threshold. Deep poverty is important because for most of these families, poverty is entrenched and their needs are more desperate." Unquote. I'm Megan Cope. I'm a professor of geography at the University of Vermont. I talked with Professor Cope about the relationships between space and poverty. I see the relationship between space and conditions and experiences of poverty as really deeply intertwined. They're partly intertwined through the very basic mechanisms of the ways that society generates spaces that we need. And one of the kinds of spaces that our capitalist economy requires is essentially marginalized spaces. And that generally, that sort of marginalized space is generally where we would see people who are socially marginalized through racism, through other mechanisms of social differentiation, and through exploitation and oppression economically. So poverty is very much co-present with those forces of marginalization and the production of space, whether it's rural space or urban space, as a part of that mechanism of oppression is an essential part of keeping things like the capitalist economy running uh, in terms of making profit for those who are benefiting from those systems. So it's the exploitation, oppression, and dispossession of folks who are on the lower side of the income scale and the ways that they are marginalized in space helps to reproduce those systems of oppression. Do you think that someone living in a rural space has a higher chance of having a lower socioeconomic standing? I think it really depends. There is certainly a stereotype of rural residents being, you know, all those stereotypes, backwards, being poor, being uneducated, um, you know, maybe more socially conservative. And those stereotypes, you know, we really need to hold them up for scrutiny and look more carefully at rural populations and understand uh, the the ways that poverty does in, intersect with every population. The, the fact in the U.S. is that a lot of wealth is created right now in urban settings, in part because that is where major expanding industries are. So service industries like healthcare and education and research and development and the technology sector are typically located in pretty, in you know, larger metro areas. So when you look at rural areas, there is much less presence of those kinds of industries and therefore less of a possibility for accumulating that kind of wealth and for doing all the other things that go with wealth accumulation, hopefully like reinvesting in the, in the society through paying taxes and philanthropy and other kinds of mechanisms. 
But in rural areas, there are, uh, you know, fewer types of um, possible job categories for a lot of folks. And those service sector jobs tend to be on the low end of the service sector rather than the professional end. They tend to be more like retail work, uh, maybe construction industry, um, maybe some more rural healthcare clinics and so forth. And then, of course, things like agriculture, forestry, fishing, mining, which are really primary, primary sector attractive industries. Those are, you know, can be lucrative, but they, uh, they are often very dangerous and very difficult physical labor. And, uh, and then they, they many times don't really pay all that much. So the job situation is very different in a, in a lot of areas of rural spaces and urban spaces. And that obviously isn't the whole story of wealth and poverty, but it's, it's a contributing factor. And I think where we do see concentrations of wealth in rural areas, it does tend to be, uh, moneyed people coming in, for instance, like second homes or uh, other kinds of, um, you know, concentrations of wealth in places that are, you know, maybe resort towns, other other sites like that. And uh, and so the, you know, I think we have to be very, very careful about looking at the context of a given place. The social and economic conditions dictate the ability for community to gain wealth. For poor families living in rural areas under these conditions, it means that they face another set of obstacles when trying to receive a quality education. An article by North Carolina Public Schools First reports that children from low-income homes are more likely to experience, quote, food, housing, and energy insecurity, unquote. The article describes the ways rural schools often need more funding than urban schools, such as higher transportation costs and a greater need for special education and staff to support children living in poverty. This study was based off of a study done on schools in North Carolina in 2020. Quote, rural school districts receive less funding because of their smaller populations, but a lower student population does not always correspond with lower costs. Because students in rural districts tend to be spread out over a large geographical area, transportation costs per student tend to be high. On average nationwide, rural school districts receive just 17% of state education funding, although they comprise half of all districts and serve one in five students." So, obviously, schools with more kids living in poverty have a higher need for funding. So what national systems are already in place to help? The most significant policy that you most likely already know is Title I, an Education Equity Act that passed in 1965. According to the U.S. Department of Education, quote, Title I of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act provides financial assistance to local educational agencies, LEAs, and schools with higher numbers of high percentages of children from low-income families to help ensure that all children meet challenging state academic standards. Federal funds are currently allocated through four 
statutory formulas that are based primarily on census poverty estimates and the cost of education in each state." Unquote. There are four types of grants a school can receive, a basic grant, concentration grants, targeted grants, and education finance incentive grants. Quote, an LEA's Title I allocation is the sum of the amount that the LEA receives under each formula. LEAs target the Title I funds they receive to schools with the highest percentages of children from low-income families, unquote. However, this system is often critiqued. Research from North Carolina public schools found that small schools were put at a disadvantage because, quote, Title I funding formula emphasizes the number of students in poverty rather than the percentage of a school's students that are in poverty, unquote. With this model, this means that if a small school with 100 kids and 50 of those kids are from low-income homes, that school could receive less funding compared to a school with 300 kids but with 60 kids living in low-income homes, despite the fact that the small school has a higher percentage of need. This does not take into account the additional resources the larger school may have in comparison to the smaller school. On a national scale, Vermont ranks fourth in public spending per student and 15th in overall quality of education. On paper, Vermont is doing well, but I want to know more. I want to know what is allowing Vermont to do well and what problems we are still facing. We will hear firsthand experience of those inside the public school system. Another important framework we will focus on is the multifunctionality of a place. Paul Selman writes about the theory of multifunctionality, describing how one structure can be used for multiple functions and results in increased value. This value can be economic or social. He describes multifunctionality as, quote, the pursuit of different goals on the same parcel of land either simultaneously or successively in time, unquote. Geographer Sherry Morse found that country stores served as sites of multifunctionality for rural Vermont towns as they served as community centers for people to gather and share information. In this work, I wanted to see if this same framework applies to schools in rural towns. I hypothesized that towns that were more rural and had less public systems in place would have a greater dependency on the school as a community center while towns that were less rural and had more public systems would depend less on the school for their source of community. Community is a key characteristic of rural towns. The stereotype that everyone knows everyone in a small town speaks to the idea that community is inherent to rurality. In 1993, Miller writes and emphasizes the importance of the school as a community center to rural towns. Miller defines community as, quote, a consistent social structure or an extended network of kinship, friendship, and work relations that pervade, unquote. Community building in rural space is particularly important as rural America faces decreasing populations and economic and resource decline. Throughout this podcast, you will hear the connection between small towns and communities numerous times. Even as a Vermonter, I was blown away by the pride and respect other Vermonters hold for their community and their neighbors. With this pride also came the fear of losing control and having to change or adapt to a new type of community. 
In the next episode, you will hear firsthand accounts of what Vermonters will do to protect their small schools. We will understand the history of education funding policy in Vermont as we take a deep dive into Act 60. I will talk to the family that helped inspire one of Vermont's largest education policy changes. 